My name is Adam Roberts, and I'm a vocal coach here in the live music capital of the world, Austin, Texas. I'm on a journey to learn the stories behind extraordinary voices of people I know and what makes them unique. Each of my guests has chosen to follow their voice. So this is Cola Voce. Well, it is my pleasure to welcome everyone to this episode of Cola Voce, which means follow the voice. And I could not be more excited than to be here with my very good friend and colleague now of several years, Lisa Sheps. How are you today, Lisa? I am great, Adam. And I, I tell you what, I am I am humbled to, uh, to be on the show, uh, considering all your past guests who are absolutely amazing. Well, you just add to the amazingness. That's how I feel about it. <laughs> Flattery will get you everywhere. <laughs> well, Lisa, I remember when I met you, we were at KOOP Radio, and I believe that I was there to do an interview that Amy Miner, uh, a former colleague and still good friend, had set up with us for a production that I was directing for the Austin Jewish Repertory Theater. And I remember that we were sitting there, and I think it was the first time I had met you, and at the table that is in the center of the radio station, we you drew out for me the beginnings of Ground Floor Theater. And I still remember that. It was, I don't know, it was a napkin. That would have made the story even better. <laughs> but I remember that sketch of Ground Floor Theater. And for folks who might be outside of Austin or who might be unfamiliar with Ground Floor, could you talk a little bit about the impetus and the mission um, of Ground Floor Theater? I can indeed. I'm always willing and able to talk about Ground Floor Theater. Uh, Ground Floor Theater. Uh, so the impetus really at the very, very, very beginning was the lack of theater space in Austin. Uh, so... I basically said to myself, I got some retirement funds. Let's clear it out and open up a space and let's open up a company that has a that is mission driven. Uh, this is my second theater to open in Chicago. The first one wasn't mission driven. It was a theater it did, you know, Neil Simon and stuff like that. And by Not that, really. do you mean open in Austin? It was open in Austin. Yes. Okay. Uh, you said you said Chicago just now, so I was just making sure that you were, I know because well, you were in Chicago too. So people, I don't know. <laughs> I lived in Chicago, and you know, I can't tell you how often I do that. I always <laughs> say, I always say, oh, this is the best place in in Chicago, and it's here in Austin. So this is the second theater in Austin. Thank you for the correction. There we go. <laughs> uh, but I really wanted to to bring in a mission driven uh, piece of work, a uh, mission driven theater, and we landed on the mission of serving the underrepresented communities. So we have a mission of producing works by and for underrepresented communities. Uh, we have a vision of theater for everyone. Uh, every single one of our shows is pay what you can. So we really wanted to create um, a welcoming environment. We have a mission of producing, uh, we have a vision of theater for everyone. Uh, all of our productions are pay what you can. We envision you know, a theater and we're still kind of young, uh, we're still very young. We envision a theater where people feel welcome to explore their creativity and uh, be able to really sort of push the limits of their creative abilities and uh, specifically 
concentrate on underrepresented communities. We also like to say that we concentrate on the underrepresented of the underrepresented. So for instance, there are a lot of theaters out there doing work for women. So that's not an area that we're necessarily gonna reach toward. Uh, so we started out immediately working with Tilt Performance Group, uh, which uh, as you, are you familiar with them? <laughs> Uh, so Tilt Performance Group is, is, was one of our first companies that came in and we uh, co-produced in, uh, the flip side at our theater. And I remember at that time just wondering whether our mission was right. And then I sat there and watched the performances with my tears in my eyes saying, we chose the right mission. It is amazing. Uh, so we work with... Uh, companies with disabilities, we work with uh, deaf community, uh, mental health. So we've got a lot, we're trying to really focus in on those people that don't bask in the light of theater all that often. And it really is incredible. I've been so fortunate to be part of uh, several productions that have been presented at Ground Floor, like you mentioned Tilt. And for those who are listening that might be unfamiliar, Tilt is a theater company that I was really privileged to co-find, co-found <laughs> with easy for you uh, to find, co-found uh, with uh, Robert Pearson and Gail Dalrymple here in Austin, and we are a company with a mission to shatter stereotypes about disability. And so it was a no-brainer that you know doing a partnering with uh, Ground Floor would be something that we we really wanted to pursue. And a question that I have, Lisa, is. You know, you mentioned that your first theater that you had here in Austin was not necessarily particularly missional or social justice oriented in that way or, or anything like that. But what I have come to know about you as a person is that those things are deeply, deeply rooted within you. And I'm curious, since this is a podcast about following the voice, literally and figuratively, I'm interested to know where you think in yourself that kind of orientation toward helping others shining the light on others, supporting others and giving a voice to others. Where do you think that came from in you? Well, I, I know specifically where it came from. So uh, for the first 40 years of my life, I lived my life as a heterosexual male. So I'm transgender. Uh, in those first, I'd say 35 to 37 years, I I couldn't have told you how a bill made, became a law. I couldn't have told you who was, I probably couldn't have told you who was president of the United States. Yes, I could. But I certainly couldn't tell you who the Secretary of Defense or the Secretary of State was. I didn't care. I didn't need to because I had all these people advocating for me. My world was fine as a heterosexual male. When I transitioned, I suddenly uh, became part of a disenfranchised class. And at the time I transitioned, which was over 20 years ago, uh, nobody knew about trans people. So we were one of the highest, one of the biggest disenfranchised classes. And suddenly I didn't have my rights that I'd always had my entire life, that uh, my voice, no matter what I said, things were taken at face value. They'd say, what do you think about this? And I go something and they go, oh, okay. Now everything I say is questioned as is almost every woman in this country. Uh, as is almost every uh, person of color in this country, trans person, all these people, you're just not, you're questioned everything you do. I will, I will tell a story that I, uh, shortly after I transitioned, uh, my air conditioning went out 
Uh, this is when I was living in Chicago. This is a Chicago story. I called the air conditioning company. I said, my air conditioning's out. Can you send someone out? Uh, and the woman on the phone said, um, how do you know it's not working? And I went, because it's not working. Um, honey, could you go to the thermostat and just tell me what it says? And I went, I know what I'm talking. And so I, she would not let me do anything until I went to the thermostat. I went through all the stuff that I had already done before. Prior to transition, if I had made that phone call, they would have said, yes, sir, we'll send someone right out. So what I learned also about my community of trans people, and I will say that I can speak for my demographic. I'm 62-year-old, white, Jewish, trans woman, uh, upper middle class. So I can speak from that experience exclusively. So what I learned about my community was that for many, many of us, I could hazard a guess most of us, we lost our voice. And I mean, this is, this is so apropos to your, to your show. We felt we were in, in this wrong situation. And what happened was for much, much of us, we'd isolate ourselves and we'd go into careers that were very isolating. Computer programmer is very popular. Truck driver, very popular. Um, I did the same thing, but I chose my isolation by being gregarious. So I was out there and talking, and as long as I was talking, nobody would ask me any questions. And so nobody could ever get very close to me. But it's the same basic thing. But what I discovered when I transitioned was these people need a voice. They, 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 are, they lack social skills for the, for the most part. So I said, well, that's one thing I have. And so I immediately became very involved in advocacy for the gender diverse in Chicago. And nationally, I began, um, I was uh, very active and an officer in Illinois Gender Advocates, which is a statewide uh, trans group. Uh, I was very active in Equality Illinois, the equivalent to that here is Equality Texas. And I started to get very active in the national trans scene, uh, the International Foundation of Gender Equality, and uh, that's IFGE. I, that was the very first board I served on. That was another eye-opening thing if folks have ever served on a board. I thought it was just like a thing you do and you go to a couple meetings and you get your name on the website, but it was a lot more work than I had expected. Um, and I'm also a founding member of the National Center for Transgender Equality, which is the largest national uh, group uh, advocating for trans rights. So I became very active in that. And I got my Civics 101 lesson really quickly. I found I learned how to lobby, went to Springfield, Illinois to lobby the government. Uh, So these are the things that informed my new life after transition. Uh, I will say that uh, along with my transition, I lost my business. I had business partners. I was a very successful business person and uh, I lost them. I will tell your listeners, if you have any interest in learning that, since I've already admitted that I don't talk about myself, uh, we did a program in which I videotaped myself talking about that stuff. It's on our website, groundfloortheater.org slash trans lives. And you can click on that and see it. So long way to say that I found my voice in social justice issues, in GLBT issues, uh, 
and all that stuff. And it's funny, I just used the the initials GLBT, which is what we called it back then. It's now LGBTQIA+. Uh, it's interesting to see how the the letter alphabet. Uh, oftentimes, I say queer uh, as a as a catch all, uh, but I learned all that stuff and became very vocal in trying to obtain decent, minor, basic human rights for this group of people. Um, so that was a very long way of answering your question. No, and it, well, I mean, it was comprehensive. And uh, I think that what I am interested in knowing as a follow-up to that question is I was thinking while you were, while you were saying um, what you were that thinking back because you were a Broadway stage manager and a Broadway performer back in the early eighties. Is that right? Would that have been the right time frame? It's exactly the right time. So, you know, obviously a very tumultuous time for Broadway um, in sexuality, in uh, many different uh, arenas that are, that were surrounding AIDS and sexuality. And, and um, I'm curious to think about, you know, you started as a heterosexual man um, on Broadway. When you were on Broadway, you were a heterosexual man. And, and but living in this world of AIDS, um, which was so prevalent, particularly in the Broadway community. And what was that? Did you have any questions about your gender identity then? How did all of that like coalesce in your experience being in the New York theater in the early 80s? Okay, well, that was kind of two, two questions. Yes, it First was. one's <laughs> easy to answer. Uh, my gender identity, I've always known who I was. So okay. I'm from the earliest memory. Uh, if you look at the continuum between uh, male and female, I figure I'm somewhere in the middle, uh, darting around either side, uh, even though I'm gorgeous. You are gorgeous. We we're just talking. <laughs> I was just talking about your hair. <laughs> oh, that's true. You were. Uh, so I, I have to say that in 1981, I'll talk specifically about the year that I was on Broadway. As a heterosexual man, I was transphobic, homophobic, all those all those isms was me. And I think, you know, it's a lot about protecting myself. So the the machoer, which is a new word I just uh, coined, uh, the more macho I was, the less suspicion would come on me about how I really feel about myself, my gender identity. I did not know that word back then. That wasn't in my consciousness. Uh, this was pretty much pre-internet. As a, as a point of reference, we uh, it, the show we did on Broadway, I was part of the stage management team and I was in the show, but we did everything on paper. So every night we were, we were doctoring scripts with cutting and pasting, literally, uh, with white out and stuff like that. So it was the old days. And so I thought I was the only one that felt like I felt. I really, truly felt that I was alone. Uh, and I mentioned the 1981 time because uh, I was the second assistant stage manager. The, the assistant stage manager was a man named Rob O'Rourke. Uh, the production stage manager is Nick Russian. Uh, but Rob O'Rourke was uh, a rather flamboyant gay man. And he invited me out to Fire Island to uh, the Pines. And for folks that aren't familiar with the Pines on Fire Island, uh, there are, Fire Island is this great island that's filled with all these different communities uh, and there are no cars available uh, allowed on. So therefore each community has this personality and there's two gay communities. One is the Pines and one is um, 
the Grove, Cherry Grove. I don't know. I, remember, I don't remember. Somebody will correct me. Um, but I remember going to this party and it was so if if for those younger folks or people that aren't as old as me that don't remember the freedom of the gay community at that time prior to AIDS, uh, there was lots of sex, lots of drugs, very little clothes. Uh, and I got invited to this party and for some reason. I said, yes, and I would go. I was terrified and appalled on so many different levels. I wish I could go back and do it again because it looked like a lot of fun in hindsight, but at the time scared the shit out of me. And at the same time, shortly, and I guess it was starting in like 1985, 86 is when people started dying around me. And again, I kind of felt insulated from it because after all, I was a straight man. I'm using air quotes on this and it wasn't part of my community. It was affecting my friends. So I lost a lot of really dear friends during the AIDS crisis, but, it, but I kind of felt isolated from it because it wasn't my community. I was like, and again, I'm so ashamed of that uh, in hindsight, but to answer your question directly, my gender identity, my sexual orientation in the forefront of my mind, so was not in question during that time. It was a very exciting time in my life because things were taking off. I had moved to New York in 1977. I opened on Broadway in 1981. That's unheard of. Yeah. Uh, and not quite as fast as Quentin. <laughs> <laughs> Twins, oh my god previous podcast guest <laughs> and and not nearly as as uh as high level as the <laughs> so it was a it was a mass of confusing feelings and thoughts at that time so i was living a really cool life i was losing friends but again that didn't really happen until 85 and by 85 i was kind of out of doing legit theater i was now doing what we call industrial theater at that time so as I watched all that going on, I always knew what my gender identity was, even though I couldn't articulate it. So my defense was to hyper-masculinize. And that's what I did. And that's how I dealt with it. Uh, I totally wish I could go back and live those days over. I was actually just thinking about this the other day. I'm sorry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a tangential story, but it's on, on tap. Please. I had a very dear friend of mine that uh, I worked with in 1977. and. Um, I might tear up a little bit, which is probably good for your podcast. Um, his name was Ernest Strotter. I called him Tex. Uh, and he was a, uh, a very flamboyant gay man. Uh, he lived with me in New York for a while. We worked in uh, Galveston together and he came up to New York. He lived in my house for a couple of years uh, and he died. He got sick and died of AIDS. He would be so happy to know me right now. Nothing would make that man happier to know the turn my life took along those lines. And I had no way to put that together in words for him. At that time, in my mind, I thought I was a cross-dresser. I keep doing air quotes. Useless on the radio or on a <laughs> podcast. Um, he had no idea. I mean, there was a handful of people that knew that I was struggling with cross-dressing, literally less than on one hand. And most of the people I told later in life, I found out they forgot this after I told them because there were no other clues. But Tex, God damn it, I wish that I could go back and tell him 
how I felt on the inside because nothing I don't think would have made him happier than me transitioning. Incredible. And you bring all of this to the fore in the work that you do at ground floor, as you mentioned earlier. And I'm interested to know what the reception in Austin has been in 2020 and 2021. And, um, you know, to the work that you have done around elevating trans voices through your work at ground floor and, and otherwise. Well, I'll tell you the, I can't answer that question clearly without getting a little political about the trans world as we know it right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's not a secret to people that live in Texas or anywhere in the country, the amount of vitriol and attacking that has been cast upon the trans community and the gender diverse community uh, in the name of whatever. Uh, and that happened after marriage equality. And it's interesting to see how people's uh, ire shift when they don't have an outlet to, to make that happen. So after marriage equality, people started going, oh, well, we can't hate uh, gay people so much anymore. We got to switch. And that's where the trans community became very visible nationwide, which is good and bad. Ultimately, I believe it's good. Uh, and it's that old saying is like, uh, first they ignore us, then they attack us. Uh, then, um, I'm, I'm skipping a step. Uh, but it ends with, then we win. We're in, they attack us stage for trans people. But in my world as a trans educator in Texas, in Chicago, and around the nation, my deal is it's about exposure. And the more people that are exposed to openly trans people, the less they can hate. So as I've met people and I talk about my trans experience, the next time something happens, it's going to be less likely they're going to have a harder time hating that other person because they've met me and I'm an okay person. So... That's an important thing. When we opened Ground Floor Theater, and I should say there's three of us at Ground Floor Theater. There's me, Patty Neftivin, and Simone Alexander. Uh, and we're all equal in the organization. When we opened Ground Floor Theater, I had a real desire to do something around the trans experience that was going to be an original. Uh, we finally did it. It took us about three years to do it, but we did a device piece called Transom. And what's interesting about Transom and other stories is there's nothing remarkable about Transom uh, from a trans experience. It's about a, a group of a found family living in a home together and the, and the trials and tribulations that they have. What made it unique was they were all trans people. But it was, uh, again, like normal life, which is something trans people don't see on stage very often. So it's about representation. And I learned this lesson actually at Ground Floor Theater uh, when somebody came to me or my uh, one of my board members, Matrix Kilgore, came to me and he said he wanted to do Lisa B. Thompson's dinner. And I said, great, send me the script. And I read the script and basically it's guess who's coming to dinner, but instead of uh, a white family and a black family, it's a black family and a Nigerian family. Mm -hmm. uh, but when I read it, I went, all right, honestly, Matrix, you're going to have to tell me what's special about this because it's just a family doing stuff. And he said, exactly. Black people don't see that on stage. And I went, and it was like a light bulb. Of course, it's about representation. So important. So Transom was step one, and we got a lot of really good feedback on that. Folks can see it on YouTube uh, if you want to. Go to our YouTube channel and search for Transom, T-R-A-N-S-O-M. 
which was a which was a great title. I have to give myself credit for coming up with it, but uh, but it has uh, a lot of meanings. Uh, and a transom is that basically it's the window above a door, uh, even though technically it's not. It's really the the wood that holds the window in. But we won't get into details. <laughs> but the transom is that window looking into another life, if you will. So uh, and then of course trans was all caps and some. So we did that and. The feedback I got from audience members as I listened, we we heard a lot of thank yous for having this, and that meant a great deal. And again, we weren't doing uh, necessarily groundbreaking theater. I mean, the, the 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 narrative itself was, you know, a slice of life, if you will. So that was really important. When we got shut down by the pandemic, I took that opportunity to do another project I wanted to do called Trans Lives, Trans Voices. Uh, which is ongoing. It ran from January to June, but we had trans people telling stories in their own words uh, about their lives. Uh, I did not have any rules for them other than it needs to involve your gender identity in some way, and it needs to be about your life. And then I turn on the camera, set it up. Uh, we set it to music. And what is amazing about this project, I first of all met a whole bunch of people I didn't know, and the spectrum of people that came in to talk. We also did a premiere. We premiered the show on a Thursday night on Zoom, and we sat together and we had a talk back, which I did not record on purpose because I wanted people to have the freedom to speak their minds. And it's amazing some of the conversations we have. So to directly answer your question, <laughs> uh, that's how I've, uh, I've, we, Ground Floor Theater, have worked to lift trans voices and and we continue that work. Uh, we're about to, and this has not been announced. So you get you're 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 getting a, a uh, breaking story. Bum bum bum. <clears throat> uh, Joe Ivester is a, a huge advocate for trans rights around the country. Uh, her son uh, is trans, and their family went through a whole situation about transitioning. And they are the kind of family like, God, you wish you had those parents. They were very supportive. She wrote a book about it called uh, Once a Girl, Always a Boy. And she turned that into a play, which we are having a reading uh, at the theater. I'm directing a staged reading of it in August, I think. Fantastic. Uh, that folks will be some folks will be able to come to see. I believe it's going to be a, an invited audience, but it's got a lot of legs. It's, it's going. She's got some people in New York that are reading it, so hopefully, it may be a, a piece that we helped develop, but has a life off Broadway. So absolutely wonderful, and yeah. it's. I think it's one of the things that you mentioned earlier, but it might have slipped under the radar if somebody wasn't really listening, is a lot of this work is original. Transom was a work that was developed at Ground Floor Theater. This is a work that you're mentioning here that is being read and workshopped in a, in a workshop reading at Ground Floor. It has to feel really good to be on the edge of helping to get that work created, as well as then putting it out there. Yeah, it feels good. To, I, you know, we all actually, all three of us at the theater just love working with new pieces. Uh, and we do a, we do a mix of new and established work. Uh, but doing those new pieces is so great. I talk about this a lot. Um, in the creative process, you have a playwright who sits in a room and writes a play. 
Uh, and then when it starts to get produced, that playwright works with the director and they make update, up, updates before the rehearsal. Uh, and then day one of rehearsal comes in and the actors add their piece. Uh, and then the designers come in and add their section. And so finally, what happens when you open is something that uh, that resembles but is not identical to that first piece that you started with. And that's what's so great about the creative process and working with people. Um, and it's fun to do. It's exciting to do. And uh, that's what we did with Transom. Although I will say Transom's devised piece, which, uh, boy, that's a lot of work. A lot of work. <laughs> As you know, because Till a lot only, about it till. basically only does device pieces. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Mazel tov for you. Thank you so much. <laughs> I don't know that it was initially thought to be that way or that we had a track that we were gonna go on in that regard, but it's but it's it's where we got to, and I'm I'm proud of that too. As my mother used to say, gay gazunt, they'll make you sandwiches. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I love it. Now, one more question that I have before we play our little uh, voice memos game that we have. Which I'm going to suck at, by the way. I'm just telling you right now, I'm going to suck at it. I can't wait. You'll be limited to three words per answer. <laughs> oh, I, oh, I know. I've listened. <laughs> this is, I will tell you honestly that that, this, that section of your show is what scares me the most. <laughs> well, we'll leave it for last. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Um, the the other question that I have as a vocal coach, and we've talked a lot about sort of the figurative voice up until this point, the literal voice. You know, there are a lot of vocal coaches and and particularly speech language pathologists and vocologists who work maybe not specific there are some who work specifically with the trans community and some who work you know, it's somewhat with the trans community. And I'm interested to know what that experience has been like in terms of your literal voice. And if you ever sought or thought about seeking or did seek, um, you know, vocal work as part of your transition. Good question. I will also, I will have to, of course, add a little bit of uh, background to those folks that don't know it as a uh, male to female transsexual. Uh, versus a female to male. So when uh, a trans man starts their transition, they take hormones, their body physically kind of goes through puberty. And part of that is the voice drops. So for those of us who transition to female after puberty, um, and I did it at 40, so oi, um, oi. <laughs> your voice doesn't change. So that once that once that happens, once that and I don't know the medical stuff, the physicality stuff of what happens, but once it happens, it's irreversible. There are surgeries that you could do, but they usually just screw you up rather than help you. So that's exactly it. It's transition. If your desire is to sort of and mine was to assimilate into a female world, you got to try to work on your voice. Uh, and I did go to a speech pathologist for a long time. I was her worst student um, <laughs> <laughs> because she was trying very hard for me to be somewhere around here in my head. We worked on trying to get out of my chest and into my head, uh, and I kind of sucked at it. I will say that the voice you're hearing now is pretty different from my voice that I had prior, but this is something that you just have to do consciously until it becomes unconscious. So I went through an epiphany, I guess I'll have to not backtrack, but when I first transitioned, I turned into this like stereotype of what I thought a woman was, this ultra feminine thing, uh, 
doll. Uh, and I would get like real, I would, I would speak very quietly. And, and my friends that were going through transition with me and my the friends I knew before were like, going, who is this person? What's going on? And it, and I thought I would have to give up. I've got a lot of interests that are stereotypically male. Uh, so we could get into a whole thing about the differences between gender identity and, uh, and, gender expression, but it's a different, it's the, it's the continuum between male and female and masculine and feminine. And nobody sits in on the edges of those. Sure. So I truly thought I was going to have to give up aviation and take up needlepoint. Uh, I thought wow. that was something. I, and it wasn't until I could figure out that I could bring into my life, these things that are kind of thought of as masculine into my life as a female. And it took a while to get there and say, okay, this is who I said. Part of that was my voice. Part of that was my physical voice. I was able to let go of things. I could stop pretending to like football, which was amazing. Um, <laughs> yes. But I'm not going to pretend that I don't like aviation. I'm not going to pretend that I you know, don't like stuff and gadgets. I love all that stuff. I'm not going to eat. I, I do eat more salads than I used to, but I don't eat exclusively salads. So, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> so, so part of that was my voice. And part of me said, okay, you know what? This is where it's falling. This is where your voice is falling. Uh, and sure, I could, I could get to a point where I was always here in my head and be a little bit more feminine, but it's not going to feel right. Sure. So, so this is where I landed. I get served on the phone about, 50% of the time, um, but not all the time. So one of the things that saddens me, and one of the things I think maybe you and I have talked about in the past, I lost singing when I transitioned. Yes. So uh, I have a very brave friend of mine, Sabrina Terribaletti. Uh, she sang as a bass. And when she transitioned, I went to her church and she still sang in her church as a bass. So there were when you look at it, you see a whole bunch of female identified people on one bay. You see a bunch of people that look like guys on the other side. And Sabrina, I don't have the courage to do that. You know, I don't want to out myself in that way, which is kind of is is uh, is kind of sad and chicken shit. But that's that's where it is. So, um, oh my god, I don't want to. You can cut this out, but I have to tell another story. Yes, tell it. Um, so I told you I was an advocate in Chicago and everybody knew who, or many people knew who I was. And I was get, I got a lot of phone calls from people newly transitioning. So I get a call from this person I don't know. And we used phones back then. Uh, and she said that she's transitioned and blah, blah, blah. And she had a voice that sounded a little deeper than mine. And she said that she sang in a choir. I said, really? Uh, that's great. I said, are you an alto? And she goes, no, I'm a soprano. And I went, Really? She said, yeah. And I said, uh, I said, are you, do you do everything in falsetto? And she said, no. I went, really? <laughs> and she said, do you want to hear? And I said, yes, I do. <laughs> and Adam, I can only describe this as a cat dying a very slow death. Oh, no. <laughs> and when I'm alone singing in the shower, that's what happens to me. Like, <laughs> when I try to hit those notes, it is just a, the worst sounding thing in the world. But I've often wanted to like go into vocal coaching and try to find a place. I've been listening, uh, you know, MJ Rodriguez is a very famous trans uh, actress. And she, I was listening to her sing a song just the other day and her range, I mean, it's still a little higher than I'm guessing that when she identified as male, she was a tenor. I was a, um, a high baritone. Uh, 
but the quality of that voice is just there's there's nothing male about it. Um, so yeah, I would love to to. I was never a great singer, but I would. And those are people that listen to my podcast off stage and on the air have heard me sing. I apologize. Um, <laughs> well, we need to get together and do it. Well, I you know I think you and I talked about it once before, but uh, it's uh, it, honestly it scares me. Sure, it's a scary thing for me. I understand that. I understand uh, that. But I would love to be able to sing again and feel comfortable singing. I can't do karaoke. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I should I should rephrase that. I won't do karaoke. <laughs> well, I see a singing date in our calendar in the very near future. <laughs> I'd be happy with any kind of date. Yes. I am happy with this date. And it's time, I think, for your the section you've been waiting for, Lisa. You're so excited for this game that we play called Voice Memos. Yeah, and uh, and then there's there's Quentin's song sounded lovely. Yeah, it, it, I you know originally I was going to call the podcast voice memos, and then uh, you know and then came up with the idea of Colavoce, which I thought was so much more apropos to following your voice. So I thought, well, I still want to use Quentin's song because it's awesome. And so then I thought, well, we'll just make a little segment out of it, and it worked out. <laughs> okay. I I do have to preface all the the answers. I am uh, musically ignorant, a pop culturally ignorant. Uh, and and unaware of my own self. So go. Well, then we're going to see what happens. Okay, yeah, we are. These are your favorites, and they might just be your favorites today, but you know, for fun, your favorite original cast recording. Unfair question. Uh, <laughs> right out of the gate. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to say Pippin. Pippin. Okay. Favorite musical group. Don't have one. Okay. Favorite Broadway personality. Oy, Vesmir. Right now, it's MJ Rodriguez. Amazing. Love it. Favorite trans activist? Mara Kiesling. Uh-huh. Um, uh, she, is the, uh, she is a good friend of mine and is the founder and just stepping down executive director of National Center for Transgender Equality and an amazing human being. Incredible. Your favorite film? Unfair question. <laughs> They're all unfair. <laughs> yeah, well, no, that's that's particularly unfair. And I really should have thought of this because this is the kind of thing that I could have expected on this. <laughs> um, right this very second, I'm going to have to say it's a tie. And okay. it, it, it kind of saddens me to say because it's the same uh, same composer uh, and I'm just jumping on a bad wagon. But I think it's uh, it's Hamilton, the filmed version and um, in the Heights. All right. Which is right. where I lived in New York, by the way. Oh, you were in the Heights. For 11 love years. It. Uh, we're already halfway through. Look how painless this is. <laughs> yeah. Speak Favorite for thing about Austin. Favorite thing about Austin, the theater community. The theater community. Love it. Here's, here's one that I don't think I'll likely ever ask anybody except you, because <laughs> it's pretty okay. specific. Your favorite theatrical department. That's a great question. And uh, again, a hard and unfair to answer. <laughs> uh, I'm going to just say right now for today, uh, my mind just keeps going to the audio department. I love it. Audio. Yep. And 
apropos for your show. That's right. There we go. But I will, I just very quickly, there's just so much beauty around what audio engineers are doing and sound designers are doing with theater these days. It's really amazing. It takes us to another level. It really does. And it's one of the hardest, I think, to accomplish really successfully as well. Uh, what about your favorite either radio show or podcast? Off stage and on the air. I was just about to say <laughs> off stage and on the air. There we go. Lisa's the host of Offstage and on the Air with Nicole. I know, which is going to be hard for your final question. That's right. I think it's going to be a tie. <laughs> Next to last, what is your favorite city in the world? New York. Oh, in the world. <laughs> no, I got to say New York City. New York, New York City, City is, is home. Yep. Uh, when I go there, it feels like people ask me for directions, uh, even if I haven't been there for years. So New York City, greatest city in the world. Couldn't agree more. And finally, your favorite podcast host. We Adam Roberts and Lisa, and Lisa Shebs. That's right. I was going to say, we have to say it on one, two, three. This is the Mutual Admiration Society here. It is. <laughs> Before we get back to our interview, a big shout out to Riley Wesson for editing this episode, Scott Ferguson for graphic design, and Jay Quinton Johnson for writing and performing the Voice Memos theme. Voice Lisa, is there anything that you would like to say or share that we haven't talked about? I mean, I know this could be a book series um, and should be, but is there anything you'd like to leave folks with? Well, what you've noticed is I don't have, it's not, it's not hard for me to talk, but uh, I am going to sort of piggyback on what I said at the very beginning. The, uh, your previous guests have pretty amazing uh michelle quentin uh, and i forgot the gentleman's name who's the rocket scientist Amato, yeah uh and nicole yeah yeah i feel humbled to be in their in their company i feel like i um i want to say i'm standing on the shoulders but i'm actually or sitting in their shadow but i'm humbled to be there and i'm honored that, that you asked me and i just love uh your podcast i i listen to a lot of podcasts and i do i do like the energy and the folks that you have on. So uh, I would just say to you, keep on going. And that's cool. And then for your listeners that, and I, and I find it strange that your listeners would not be familiar with the Austin theater scene, uh, but to know the vibrant theater scene that is out there doing courageous work, uh, creating theater that is uh, amazing, that is outside of the mainstream, uh, not poo-pooing on, on theaters like Zach, but there are these small companies that are doing the sort of the, the experimental work, like Round Flare Theater, like uh, The Vortex, and uh, other production companies that, that perform in these venues. We have, a, I just want to do a, a quick commercial. We have a, a, a group out there at a hashtag called ATX Theater with an R-E. Uh, we're trying to get people to know that theater exists in this city. Uh, and the heart and soul of the people that are doing it uh, is really, really incredible. Uh, and I point to, to Tilt Performance Group. When I went through that maze of, of theaters, uh, Deaf Austin Theater, all these companies are doing just amazing work. Even the Gilbert and Sullivan Society uh, has turned, they're, they're doing a, a non-yellow face version of the Mikado right now. And that's innovative and cool. And you don't think of Gilbert and Sullivan as innovative and cool. Uh, so that's what I would tell your listeners. Uh, go out and enjoy and support theater in Austin. 
And I would say to you, Lisa, I think you're an inspiration for the rest of us and for our programming and to keep us creative and to be, you know, a literal house of uh, where we can come and play and 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 share our work. And I can't thank you enough for the contributions you've made to Ground Floor and to my life. And I want to wish you a happy pride. Oh, thank you. It's the end of pride. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, this is slated. This is slated uh, to uh, go live the last uh, day of the month, the last ah. day of pride month. So prizel Todd. Prizel Todd. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much again, Lisa. It's always great to sit down with you and I couldn't be more honored that you joined today. You're quite welcome, Adam. And I'm equally honored to be here. Well, thank you. And we'll see everyone on the next episode of Cola Voce. Thanks for joining me on today's episode of Gola Voce. And until next time, remember, follow your heart and follow your voice.